Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And while you're turning there, I just wanted to mention, um, in a couple weeks we'll have a, a video and pictures of the youth retreat, but I just wanted to say, you know, thank you guys so much for your prayers and for your support uh, for our youth. Uh, we had an amazing time uh, just getting to seek the Lord, have a lot of fun, and uh, point each other to Jesus during that time. And um, we got to baptize 16 uh, students and just see the Lord work in each of our hearts in amazing ways. And Laura and I just want to say how grateful we are to be a part of a church that has a heart for the youth and the kids. Um, it was amazing just to see as we got closer to the youth retreat, the Lord just put it on your heart to give uh, scholarships for youth who might not be able to pay for the retreat. Or the Lord put it on your heart to volunteer your time and to come with us on the retreat. Or the Lord put it on your heart just to write that check for whatever might come up, and stuff did come up for the retreat. And just your heart for prayer, your heart in making hundreds of cookies for us, on that retreat. And so we're just so grateful uh, to be a part of you guys as we seek the Lord and we're excited for what he's doing uh, in each of our lives and also for what he's doing in the future of the body of Christ. So praise the Lord. Acts chapter 19 this morning. We're going to be in verse 11 through 41. And today's message is entitled, How the Gospel Changed a City. If you've been with us, you know we're going verse by verse through the book of Acts. And during Paul's second missionary journey, we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, where it says, Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, this isn't Asia we call Asia today, but the Roman province of Asia in modern-day Turkey. And God did not allow them to go into that area to share the gospel. Not yet. Paul was able to stop briefly in Asia on his way home from Corinth at the end of that second missionary journey. But in Acts chapter 19, as Paul continued his third missionary journey, he's got an open door in Asia in the city of Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, verse 10, we read last week where it says, And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. You see, God had a plan to use Paul in Ephesus, in that region of Asia, but it wasn't in Acts chapter 16, it was a few years later. And last week we started that in Acts 19. And so now Paul's been in Ephesus for two years, and we pick up in Acts 19, verse 11, where we read about unusual miracles. Verse 11, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. The first thing I want us to notice about this is that Luke specifically calls these unusual miracles. And let's be honest, these are pretty weird, right? Can you just imagine Paul blowing his nose and somebody grabs a dirty Kleenex and takes it home to sick grandma and they put it on sick grandma and she's healed, she's better. Or what about somebody grabs the sweaty apron of Paul's 
and they put it on a demon-possessed man, and the demons flee. That's some supernatural sweat. That's some powerful perspiration. But all joking aside, these miracles were not the result of holy handkerchiefs or sweat. Verse 11 told us that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. You see, God did the miracle. And yet Paul's sweaty garments were a physical contact where these sick and possessed people could activate their faith in God's healing. You might remember the woman who was bleeding for 12 years in the Gospels. We read about her in Matthew chapter 9, verse 21, where it said, For she said to herself, If only I may touch Jesus' garment, I shall be made well. And so she made her way through the crowd to Jesus. And she reached out and she just touched the hem of Jesus' robes. And she was healed instantly. And yet we read in Luke 8.48, telling the same story but giving us extra details. It says, And Jesus said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Again, it wasn't magic clothing that healed her, but faith in Jesus that produced the healing. But for this woman, touching Jesus' robes was a point of contact for her faith to be activated. For the Ephesians, Paul's dirty clothes were a point of contact for their faith to be activated. If you want to follow along and take notes today, your first fill in the blank in your bulletin. It says, faith should be expressed externally. But our faith is always in God, not in formulas, spiritual phrases, or holy trinkets. Our faith should be external. We should see it. There should be action. But our faith is in God. It's not in, oh, it's a sweaty bathrobe from Paul. No, that's not where our faith is in. Our faith is in God, in Jesus. On our youth retreat, we gave an opportunity for the youth to trust in Jesus, whether for the first time or to rededicate their lives to Christ. And we offered a a point of physical reference for them to, as our heads were bowed and our eyes were closed, just to raise their hand as a physical dedication of saying, Lord, I'm committing my life to you. And as I looked up to make sure at least somebody wanted to make that decision, I was overwhelmed at how many hands were in the air that I couldn't even look around the room because I started crying about how much God was doing. It was amazing. But raising your hand, that's not what saves you. But it was a point of contact for their faith to be activated. You see, the youth were saved the moment they believed in Jesus. But the opportunity of raising their hand and making that physical motion was a point for them to look back to and say, yes, Lord, I've made that decision to follow you to make you my lord and my savior sometimes when i pray for people i'll put my hand on their shoulder not because my hands are holy or perfect or i have any power to give to them but just as a point of contact to say hey i'm praying for you and as i'm putting my hand on your shoulder it's an opportunity for you to activate your faith and say lord if it's your will Would you do this thing that we're requesting? Would you be here in this moment? And this is what we see here with the Ephesians. As they came into contact with anything associated with Paul, even a dirty handkerchief or a dirty apron, they also associated it with Jesus. And as they touched that thing, 
they knew, Jesus, you can do anything. And if it's your will, Lord, you can even heal me. Or you can even set me free from the spiritual bondage that I'm in. And so their faith was activated, and God did unusual miracles. Now back to our text in verse 13. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Can we just pause there and think about that title? It's kind of intense and crazy, right? Itinerant Jewish exorcists. These were traveling Jewish demon fighters. Okay? Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Notice, first of all, they took it upon themselves. They saw the power of Jesus through Paul, so they sought to use some magic phrase or magic name to cast the demons out of people. Verse 14 says, Also, there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So these seven sons, these brothers, they, like Paul, they tried to cast out demons by the name of Jesus, but there was a big difference between the seven brothers and Paul. Paul had a relationship with Jesus. The brothers did not. They were trusting in in a phrase. Paul was trusting in Jesus and therefore had the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of him, flowing through him. It reminds us of Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 22, where Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, in the end, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They claim to do wonders in Jesus' name, and yet Jesus declares he never knew them. The name of Jesus was on their lips, but it wasn't in their heart. This reminds us to judge our own hearts. With our next fill in the blank, we ask ourselves, Do I seek to use Jesus for my will or seek to be used by Jesus for His? Do I seek to use Jesus for my will to be done or am I humbly surrendering myself to be used by Jesus for His own purpose and His own will? Do our prayers indicate that we're giving the orders or that we're taking the orders? It's okay to to give requests to the Lord to ask Him for things, so long as we do so with a not my will, but yours be done. These exorcists, they tried to use Jesus and they ended up fleeing naked and wounded while the name of Jesus spread throughout the whole city. Look at the next verse in verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together 
and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. These were books or scrolls that contained charms and incantations tied to demonic power. Their worth was somewhere between one and five million dollars. And by destroying them, these Christians decided that their spiritual threat and temptation outweighed their monetary worth. And I think it's a great thing for us to follow. As we evaluate our own lives and we look at our own possessions, anything that's demonic or sinful, it needs to go. Things that lead us into temptation should go as well. If we're willing to cut ties with demonic and sinful and tempting things, even if they're worth a lot of money, if we're willing to cut ties with them, then we will see the word of the Lord grow mightily and prevail in our own hearts and in our own lives. Now in verses 21 through 41, we read about the riot in Ephesus. It says, When these things were accomplished... Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had gone through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So if you look at the map, Paul's talking about how he wants to go through Philippi and then Corinth and then back to Jerusalem. And then after he hits Jerusalem, he wants to go out on the sea and get all the way to Rome. That's his goal. That's his plan. But for now, he's staying in Ephesus, and he sends two of his his brothers with him ahead to Philippi. And so, verse 23, And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Christianity is here described as the way. That's what the commotion was about. 4, verse 24, a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation, and he said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, This Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius gave three reasons why Christianity was a bad thing. He says it threatened their prosperity. It disgraced their trade as many shrine makers. You see, people would come from all over the Roman Empire into Ephesus to worship at this temple of Diana, and they would make miniature shrines that they could sell, and the people would take home, and they would say, you can now worship this goddess in your own home if you buy one of our shrines. And so their trade was becoming disgraced, and it declined the worship of their goddess, Diana. What amazes me is that the gospel had such an impact in Ephesus that it was affecting the culture and the economy. 
there was a significant decrease in idol worship as more and more people turned away from idols and false gods to the one true God and worshipped Jesus. Amazing. Look at the people's response to Demetrius' complaint in verse 28. It says, Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. So Demetrius has successfully started this riot. And as they all rush into the theater that holds thousands and thousands of people, they find two of Paul's traveling companions, two of Paul's buddies, and they grab them and they take them with them into the theater. We can just imagine the chaos that's beginning. Look at verse 30. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to Paul, pleading that he would not venture into this theater. We can just imagine Paul saying, there's a huge crowd, let's go tell them about Jesus. And his friends and the public officials that know Paul, they're like, no, they're crazy. They don't even know why they're there. They're going to kill you. And I just imagine Paul saying, been there, done that. Remember Lystra? They stoned me and left me for dead. I want to share Jesus with this great crowd of people. But they held them back, physically holding them back. You see, Paul cared more about sharing Jesus than he did about his own safety. Verse 32, Some in the crowd therefore cried one thing, and some another. For the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Isn't that hilarious? Most of the crowd there didn't even know why they were there, but they weren't going to miss out on the gathering, right? They were joining in. Demetrius the silversmith, they led the riot. They stirred up the whole town. Many of them were confused. Some of them just came along for the ride, but they were there, and they were together, and they were united in the chaos. And so, verse 33, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! For two hours. Now this Alexander mentioned here, he was a leader of the Jews in Ephesus. He wasn't with Paul. He wasn't with the Christians. And he wanted to make sure everybody knew that. And so the Jews there, they pushed Alexander out into the front and they said, make sure that they know we don't like Paul or the Christians either. All right? We're not a part of them. And so Alexander gets out there and he begins to speak to the crowd, but then they realize, hey, this guy's a Jew. We don't like Jews either. And so it backfires. And they're just all angry and upset and they begin chanting towards their goddess for two hours. Verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. 
For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. This city clerk was like the mayor of the city. And he reminded the crowd not to give in to rash decisions, that these Christians have not directly attacked Diana or the worship of her. Verse 38, Therefore, the city clerk continues, If Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. The city clerk reminded them that there's a right and a wrong way to bring your accusations against the Christians. But this riot that we've done right here is unlawful under Roman rule. And so verse 40, the city clerk finishes and he says, For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Finally, the city clerk, he explains that they were in danger from Rome for disturbing the peace. He says, guys, if Rome finds out that we're all going nuts, that we're rioting, we're going to lose our privileges. This great city of Ephesus is going to be dethroned from our place. We're going to be disqualified in Rome's eyes. We're going to lose our freedoms and our strength. And so, in order to escape Roman punishment upon the city of Ephesus, the people, they disbanded. Paul and Gaius and Aristarchus and all the believers, they were off the hook. Now, when these rioters were pressed to answer the question, what do you have against these Christians? What have they done against you? They really had no answer at all, except, well, people don't buy our trinkets as much. So we should probably kill them, right? I mean, it was a pretty lame accusation. And I think that's amazing, because it shows that Paul, he was never found condemning the temple of Diana. Paul was never found standing outside of their idol worship, rebuking them for worshiping a false god. We don't even read Paul calling out the sin of idol worship here in Ephesus. You see, Paul didn't try to fight against the sin. He simply pointed people to the one who has conquered sin. Pointed them to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we should stop calling sin, sin. I'm saying that we should be known for who we follow, not what we're against. We should be known for who we follow, not what we're against. You see, if we make morality the top priority, we might convince someone to stop worshiping idols. But if they don't believe in Jesus, they're still going to go to hell, even though they might be more moral. On the other hand, if we make the gospel the priority, then we are inviting someone who is a slave to their sin to trust in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. And though they were stuck in sin, when they trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into their life and begins to change their heart from the inside out. Paul puts it this way in his letter to Ephesus some years later. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, And you, Ephesians, he made alive, 
who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. You who once walked according to Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. He's telling the Ephesians, you, and he's telling us today, you all, we all, once walked according to our flesh. We did whatever our wicked, sinful heart wanted us to. We were slaves to our sin. But, verse 4, But God, who was rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, how can we be free from sin while we're still dead in our trespasses and sins? We can't. How can we change our hearts while we are by nature children of wrath? We can't. That is why Jesus loved us and died for us on the cross. That is why He did so, dying for our sins, even while we were still sinners. He died in our place. You see, your next fill in the blank, Jesus is step one. Jesus is step one. Sometimes we get so excited about wanting people to come to Christ that we start looking at the external. Well, you need to fix this part of your life, or you need to stop this sin, or you need to change this aspect of who you identify as. Jesus is step one. And if you look at your own life, if you're a believer then you're probably a lot like me where you can look back and you can see, okay, I knew stuff about God. I knew I needed to be better. And boy, I tried with all my, my heart, with all my might to be free of my sin. And boy, it was pathetic. I failed miserably. But then there came a time where I simply surrendered to Jesus and I trusted in Him as my Lord and my Savior. I recognize that I don't deserve anything but punishment, Lord. I'm a sinner, and I deserve eternity in hell. But Lord, you loved me so much that you came and died on the cross in my place. You rose again from the dead, so that anyone who believes in you will not perish in hell, but have eternal life. And what's amazing is after I made that decision... I wasn't focused on my sins I was trying to defeat. I was just focused on Jesus, my Savior. And as I continued to focus on Jesus, I began to look back and realize I don't struggle with those sins like I used to. As I continued to focus on Jesus, I looked back and I realized, Lord, you've delivered me from these sins that I was a slave to. Lord, where there was only defeat and shame, Lord, there is victory. And it's all because of you. And so here, we're reminded that Jesus is step one. Paul didn't come into Ephesus rebuking their idol worship. He came into Ephesus preaching Jesus. Do you want to see people free from sexual sin? Preach Jesus. 
Do you want to see minimized abortion? Preach Jesus. Do you want to see racism become a thing of the past? Preach Jesus. Because if we focus on any of these issues, we're focused on the external and we're fighting it with our own strength. But if we focus on the gospel, Jesus can change lives. He's changed our lives. Because we who once were slaves to sin, we've been rescued. We've been given new life. The gospel will have a far greater impact, an eternal impact, than our efforts against specific sins. A few years after this, Paul would write a letter to the Ephesians. We've already read some of the verses from it. But one of his major points was how to live as believers in Jesus. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 22 in the New Living Translation. He says, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Paul exhorts us, or he encourages us to take action in throwing off our old sinful nature. To actively choose to deny our flesh and instead live for Jesus. Your next fill in the blank, believing in Jesus is not a one-time decision, but a daily decision to follow him. Not one time, but it's a daily decision. You see, the Christian life is hard work. My wife and I will often be talking with our kids, which it may surprise you to learn that they're sinners. They're just like me. And so Laura and I will often be talking with them and encouraging them that only Jesus can give them victory over their sin. And often they'll respond, well, I asked Jesus to help me and I still hit my brother or I still hit my sister. And I'm glad that they're asking Jesus for help. But as nice as that would be for Jesus to completely remove our fleshly desires, that's not how God works. Instead, God gives us new life and gives us the ability to pursue Him and turn away from sin. But it's still a battle. And every time we choose Jesus over the flesh, we're declaring our love for God is greater than our love for ourselves, our love for the flesh. I envision this kind of like we're all fish in a stream, but we're dead fish, right? Even a dead fish can swim with the current, right? Jesus gives us new life, and he makes us alive. So we can swim against the current. We can swim upstream, but it's hard. It takes a lot of effort. It would be easier to be alive, but just float and go downstream, right? And that's kind of like the Christian life. God gives us new life, and he gives us strength we never had before, but it's still difficult as we swim against the current and we choose to live for His will instead of our own will. We choose to throw off the old sinful desires and choose to put on Christ and live for Him. And so, the fact that we want to sin, but we still strive for Jesus instead, I really think that's what makes our love so meaningful. 
Because if we didn't really want to sin, then our love for God would be easier, which means it wouldn't mean as much, right? And so, as we choose to love God by doing His will, turning away from our flesh, our love for Him is proclaimed. And so, church, are you a follower of Jesus or just a believer in Jesus? Do you cast off the old sinful nature? Do you swim against the current? Or do you believe the lies that say, it's too hard, I can't do it, it's not worth it? You see, God calls us to holiness, and He empowers us with His Holy Spirit, but He still waits for us to take the next step. He died for us on the cross. He's filled us with His Holy Spirit, but He still waits for us to take the next step. Maybe you remember the story in the Old Testament of God rescuing Israel out of Egypt. God sustaining them for 40 years in the wilderness. He brought them across the Red Sea. And now they're finally going to enter into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. God spoke to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 9. In verses 1 through 3, He said, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall. The descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, Who can stand before the descendants of Anak? These were giants in the land. Verse 3, Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is He who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. God called Israel to enter into the promised land. God promised, I'm going to go before you as a consuming fire. I will defeat them, but you need to drive them out. You need to follow after and drive them out. You see, God did the work, but Israel played a part too. Israel entering into the promised land represents or is an example of the Christian life. You see, God calls us to enter in, to become more and more like Him, become more godly in our life, in our heart. He's already gone before us as a consuming fire. He's defeated sin. He's conquered the flesh. He's resurrected from the dead. And yet we still have to drive out our own flesh. He's given us the victory. He's given us the strength that we need, but we still have to drive it out. God's done the work, but we still play a role. And so church, don't be like Israel. Because if you know the story, they entered into the promised land and they did drive out some of the enemy, but others, they left. They said, well, they're not really a threat to us. Well, I don't care about that hill anyways. It's not really a big deal. And yet it became a big deal. Because as time went on, those enemies that were left, the Canaanites that were left there, they shared their idol worship of false gods with Israel. 
And Israel was tempted and turned away from the one true God and they worshipped idols. And they fell into sin and temptation. Those enemies they failed to drive out became a thorn in their side later on. Don't be like Israel. Cast off the old sinful nature. Don't let it remain or it will cause you big issues later on. Your last fill in the blank. If you're not fighting your flesh, then you're losing the battle. If you're not fighting your flesh, then you're losing the battle. Let the Holy Spirit renew your mind. As you focus on Jesus and seek Him in His Word and in prayer and in fellowship with other believers, let the Holy Spirit renew your mind and make you new, giving you strength to fix your eyes on Him, to live for Him, and to deny what your sinful flesh wants you to give into. Let God continue to change you as you continue to surrender to Him. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much that You have gone before us. Lord, You went before us by going to the cross, dying on the cross for our sin, for the sins of the world. God, thank You that You went before us in death and then You rose again, defeating the grave, fulfilling the law, and bringing in the new covenant, the new agreement between God and people. The agreement that simply says anybody who believes in you, Jesus, trusts in you, will be saved. Not because we're good, but because you're good. God, thank you for going before us. Lord, thank you for filling us with your Holy Spirit. And God, right now, as we are seeking you, God, we recognize that we are weak in our own strength. Lord, would you please fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. God, would you empower us to throw off our sinful desires, to put on you. God, would you empower us to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. God, would you help each of us to know individually what that looks like for us personally. As we continue to pray, if you're listening to this and you've been waiting to give your life to Jesus, because there's some things in your life that you need to fix and, and get made right, then I encourage you to stop fighting a losing battle. Come to Jesus as you are. Put your trust in Him and surrender to Him, bringing the good, the bad, and the ugly to the cross. And just say, Lord Jesus, would you have mercy on me? Would you save me? God, we thank you that you accept us wherever we are as long as we're walking towards you. Thank you that you accept us as long as we call out to the name of Jesus in surrender and say, Lord, we not only believe that you are God and that you are risen again, but Lord, we're surrendering our lives to you. Would you be our Lord and our Savior? God, we thank you for your gift of salvation. God, we thank you for your amazing work in the city of Ephesus as your gospel goes forth and changed a city. God, we thank you for how you have changed many of our hearts and our lives as we've sought after you. God, would you continue that work? 
Lord, would you help us to be your hands and your feet as we point people to you? Lord, would you continue to change Willows, Glen County, Lord, wherever we're from, God, would you be so bright in our lives that people would see you and come to know you. Lord, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship. Promise to do. May we just look forward to the hope of eternal life with Him. If you can stick around for a barbecue and fellowship, we'd love to have you. If you need to take off, we're so glad you joined with us today. If we can pray for you, we're up front. We'd love to pray with you. There's a lady in the books in the in the library there. Um, but God bless. You're dismissed. If you got to leave, if you want to hang out and stay, then hang out. We'll start firing up the grill. Praise the Lord.